Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. On this week's show, it is part one of a four-part special, Nerdy V10s. In this special series, we will embark on the journey to rediscover F1's past. Hello, my name is Ron Mylander, and you're listening to the Formula Birds podcast. Hi, I'm Rosanna Tennant, and you are listening to the incredible Cut to the Race podcast. Hi, I'm Jordan King, and you're listening to the Formula Nerds podcast. Hi, I'm Crofty. You're listening to the Cut to the Race podcast. It's lights out, and away we go! Hello, and welcome to Nerdy V10s, where we talk anything and everything to do with the classic era of Formula One. Today is our very first show, and I'm delighted to say that to help unpack some classic Formula One eras, we are joined by the renowned F1 journalist and former Five Life commentator, Maurice Hamilton. Maurice, welcome to the show. How are you? Very well, James. Nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. My pleasure. Uh, We're also joined by uh, two regular uh, Cut to the Race podcast panel members. We've got the wonderful Sam. How are you, sir? Yes, I'm all good. Thank you. I'm all good. How, How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And uh, James McKenzie, how are you? Uh, I'm all right. Apparently not wonderful, but other than that, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Good. I'm sorry. You are, you're, you're, <laughs> still, you're still wonderful to me. So. Oh, thanks. So just to give our readers a bit of a background to yourself, Maurice, I'm going to do a bit of a, a, bit of a this is your life moment, so please forgive me. But uh, you're a close, you were a close friend of the legendary Murray Walker. Uh, you started covering F1 in 1977. And you've written over 30 books now, including biographies of Nicky Lauda, James Hunt, Eddie Jordan, Frank Williams, Damon Hill, uh, 50 Years of McLaren Racing, which is on my Christmas list, and also uh, Incredible, the tribute to, to Murray, which I have now read from cover to cover and was brilliant. You've also spent time as a journalist for The Guardian and The Observer and The Independent, as we said as well, a former Five Live commentator. So you've kept yourself busy in your F1 years, haven't you? I've been very, very lucky, James. Um, I've managed to... Since 1977, when I quit my job as a, as a salesman selling plastic underground drainage, would you believe, um, and, and became a freelance bro- uh, writer, I managed to maintain the freelance status throughout. And uh, that was difficult at times, obviously, because, you know, you, you, you're you on your own. But I wanted to keep that. I didn't want to get – I got offers of, of full-time jobs with magazines and so on, but I didn't want to be tied down if I could possibly manage it. And I have managed it actually. I've been I've been clear of that. I've been a freelance all the way through, and it's given me this scope to do a lot of the things you've mentioned. Uh, time to write books. Uh, time to accept. I never intended to be a broadcaster. Never, ever, ever. I, I just love writing. That's what I love doing. And I happened to be in the right place, at the right time, keeping a lap chart on what was then uh, radio, uh, the, the light program. I think God, right back to then. Um, but radio two. That's right. Uh, with Simon Taylor doing his lap chart and um, up in the commentary box because then I could see the race from the commentary box and and hear what was going on. And uh, they were expanding the program to the point where they wanted a second voice. 
And he turned around to me and said, do you fancy doing it? And I said, yeah, why not? And so suddenly I'm a broadcaster. But that really was, you know, I found that quite hard at times, particularly doing the main commentary bit, which I did for four or five years, which I didn't particularly enjoy. I enjoyed being the summarizer, the guy who came in with the, the wise comments, wise in quotes comments. Um, and all of that, but the the broadcasting really my my main love was and is writing. So I've been very fortunate to do all the things that you you kindly outlined. Yeah, well, it has been one one career. I mean, if we can move quickly onto onto the driver aspect of things as well. Our first our first sort of main summary question is: You've seen F one develop since the seventies, and we've had drivers like the yeah, the iconic James Hunt and the Gilles Villeneuve, Mickey Lauda. They morphed into the Senna's and the Prosts. Then we had the Schumacher's and the Hakkinen's, and now we've got the Hamilton's and the Verstappen's. So, how do you think the drivers have developed over the course of the last the last forty years or so? And what skill sets do you think they need now that maybe they didn't need back then, or or maybe have some skill sets been lost? Where do you think the difference now is with these drivers compared to uh, compared to when you first started? The environment that they're working in is vastly different for obvious reasons. Because in, in the late 70s, early 80s, if you just look at the simple act of driving, uh, it was clutch, gearbox, heel and toe, uh, all the rest of it, double clutching and all the rest of it, manual gearbox, and nothing else to complicate matters in the cockpit. And now look what they've got. Um, it's incredible, the stuff that they have to do. They're going so much faster. Um, the, the G-forces are greater. But back in the day, the dangers were much higher. And uh, and uh, it was the car was much more lively, which I actually quite enjoy when you watch film of old stuff and you see the car sliding and drifting. It's just incredible. I mean, I think downforce has been the curse of, of, of motorsport, but it's there. You can't uninvent it. It's come. So you, you have to deal with it. So I think the answer to your question is that while the, the environments, as I've said, are vastly different, their ambition, their will to succeed, their skill, to, to drive what they've got to the maximum capacity to speed, which when you're spectating by the side of the track are, are eye-watering, that hasn't changed. So while um, James Hunt might have been cornering slower than Lewis Hamilton, definitely cornering slower, he was actually working harder in some respects, the way he was controlling the car, sliding it, using the throttle, and having to brake and change down in a different manner. Now, I mean, the braking is phenomenal. I mean, I've stood at the braking area going into the first chicane at Monza. So they're coming towards you at just over 200 miles an hour. And they're braking in an unimaginable area, 120 meters, something like that, from 100, from 200 plus miles an hour down to 60. It's just, you cannot take it in. Whereas before they would be arriving early and you would see, they would brake early, you would see the nose of the car dip. You would, you would have a better sense of what they were doing and how they were managing the corner. Today, it's very, very hard when you're standing at the inside of the corner to, to see who's different. They all look the same because, of course, the times now are so much closer. That was the other thing, in that the grid uh, back in the day would be separated by six or seven seconds. There would be huge gaps between the guys. Now it's nothing, which I think is phenomenal in a way. I mean, absolutely incredible that they are covering, let's say, three and a half miles and separated by tens, hundreds of a second. That, I think that's fantastic, but very, very different. But the end result is the same. They're all trying to do, they are the very, very best at what they do. They're just doing it differently, but they are the best and they are way, they're, 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 they're superhuman in my view. Yeah, it's, it, with each generation, you know, the drivers kind of reinvent themselves. Um, and do you miss those kind of icons from the past? Like, as James says, the James Hunts, the Jill Villeneuves, um, or, you know, 
do you have an appreciation for for the modern athlete as well? I think, uh, and this is going to apply to you guys. I'll warn you now. Uh, in 30 years' time, when you're looking back on your careers now and how this Formula Nerds has started, and you think, oh, do you remember how we started back in the day? It was really so small. And look at us now. Here we are, a multinational corporation, all the rest of it. But you're, you're going to look back on these days now with a, in, in, with a certain, yeah, there is rose-tinted aspect to it because it's where, it's how you're growing up. And that is going to mean the most to you. So it's same same for me. Because I mean, I was I spectated. My dad took me to a race when I was seven, so I've been a, a, a fanatic and motor racing spectator since then. And Jim Clark was my hero, and I, I watched him race from the fence at Silverstone. So I I will obviously appreciate them, and I've got fond memories of them more than I have today. Because today, of course, uh, the, the the environment that they're working in, as I said before, is different. But it's different not just from driving, but also the way they're having to work. You don't see them. You know, they they are they get out of the car, they've got a debrief, they go straight into these vast motorhomes with smoke glass doors, you're not allowed in, you can't talk to them. Whereas back in the day, um, there, there was no such thing as public relations. There was no such thing as a team having a press officer. They just didn't have one. So if, for example, uh, I wanted to interview James Hunt, say Autosport said to me, can you do an interview with James Hunt uh, about whatever the topic might be? I would hang about the paddock gates, waiting for him to arrive on the on the on the Friday. See him march in, usually with a girlfriend on the arm, and no managers, nothing like that. And say, "Hey, James, how you doing? Okay, listen, I have to I have to do an interview for Autosport. You wouldn't mind giving me some time? No, no problem, old boy. Yeah, okay, come and see me after practice this afternoon. And you might see him. The downside of it is that you might not, because he'd forget and go off and be doing something else. Whereas today, of course, it's all regimented. You would get a 10-minute slot if you're lucky, and the driver would have to be there because the PR person would be with him. But the, the difference back in the day was that if he did turn up, it would be just you and him. There would be no press officer hovering over his shoulder, putting a tape recorder on the table and inhibiting him because he's thinking, oh, I've got to be careful what I say. Whereas back in the day, it would be you and him, and if he trusted you, which was the whole thing, was to build up trust. That was what it was all about, the trust between the two of you, that he had to trust you. And he would say, listen, this topic that you, you're asking about, what I will send the record is this, but look off the record, and then he would tell you something, and he would trust you not to print it. That doesn't happen now because they don't say that because the, tips, the tape recorder is on. So, so therefore, I'm going to look back on that time much more favorably than the regimented period that, that you have today. That's just natural. That's the way it is. Uh, I, I am going to have better feelings for those days. So I'm going to look upon, I mean, Alan Jones, for example, world champion in 1980. What a great bloke, fantastic bloke. You go and have a beer with him, no problem. And he would just tell you uh, how, how things were, which, of course, wouldn't happen now. You'd see them at the airport because they'd be on the same flight as you. They wouldn't have the same executive jets. And in some cases, they'd be flying economy because they, in those days there was no business class. It would be first class <laughs> An economy, and generally they'd be an economy, and they wanted to be an economy. They they didn't like being up front on their own. They'd come down and mingle with the mechanics and the lads at the back of the plane, all having a beer, and in those days a, a cigarette, which you could do in those days. So just so different. So you will you'll understand why I say, yeah, <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Oh, oh, completely. And and you you mentioned Jim Clark, obviously, and not to, to lead the witness as such, but would you say that he's the greatest that you've ever seen race, or you know, would you would you give a different answer? I appreciate that's quite a difficult question over you know lots of years yeah. of the sport. Uh, indeed, Sam. I mean, I get asked that question loads. You know, who's the greatest? I don't know because you cannot compare different eras. They've got different jobs to do. Uh, in the days of Jimmy Clark, 
uh, you know, in 68, for example, six or seven drivers were killed. I mean, not just in Formula One, but there were Formula One drivers doing other things, which they did in those days. Ludovico Scarpiotti doing a hill climb, for example. Mike Spence at Indianapolis. And just diff- just different days. Uh, Jim Clark was was my sort of, again, going back to this, this idea of what you guys are going to think in 30 years' time. I mean, I was coming in and, and, and I was he was my hero, in a word, because he was the guy I most wanted to be. Because he just seemed, he was so unbelievably quick. Uh, and yet he, he got out of the car and he was shy and he was like, you and me, you know, he, uh, there was no airs or graces. Um, just a lovely guy where I really was impressed by him, apart from what he was doing in a formula one car was in those days they would, and particularly, um, I'm thinking of there's a, there still is the gold cup at Alton park, which back in the day was for non, it was a non-championship formula one race. So in those days we only had, 14 Grand Prix, maybe 15 at the most. And there would be non-championship races, which the teams would all go to because it was a kind of test session. And some years we had as many as five non-championship races. Now, in those races, the Gold Cup being one in particular in September, August or September of each year, uh, the, the support race would be touring cars. And Jim Clark would drive a Lotus Cortina in that for fun, because he could, because that was the way. And Jim Clark in a Lotus Cortina I have never seen anything like it in my life. Unbelievable. At Old Hall, the first corner, just completely sideways and just smiling and, and just enjoying himself. Having it, and, but his car control, and because he did the RAC rally once and really did well until he hit a tree, unfortunately. But, um, you know, he, he's got natural skill. And he, yeah, he will obviously be for me. Be, and he made it look so easy. That was the thing. I mean, he just so relaxed at the wheel and the fingertip control. Uh, everything about him. So yeah, for me, he was the greatest, but, but then again, I, I also, uh, I, when I'm doing a list, I also put Sterling Moss at or near the top because although he didn't win a championship, what that guy did in every conceivable type of car, I'm getting back to that topic again, I suppose, but, but, but Moss was phenomenal in that he was better than Fangio insofar as Fangio was maybe the better formula one driver, but Moss was the better all round driver and that he did everything. He raced everything, and he did the Mille Miglia in 1955 which, with Dennis Jenkins and a 1,000 miles around Italy in the 300 SLR Mercedes, where they averaged just under 100 miles an hour to three, for the 1,000 miles. Unreal. I mean, that, that isn't, well, had never been done before and will never be done again because it stopped in 1957. But, but Moss, I think, was superb. Yeah. Moving on, Senna, breathtaking. I saw, I was lucky enough to see him do, take pole position at Monaco, uh, I was right down at the swimming pool. The first chicane going into the swimming pool when so it was 88. And he did that unbelievable lap that Prost couldn't even believe. And I was standing there. And there was just something. You knew it was coming because we're getting in the lap, final minutes of qualifying and you knew he was going to do it. And he comes around in the slow lap and you're waiting, 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 waiting. And he appeared out of tobacco. And the car, the only way I can describe it to you is the car was dancing. I was, it was at my eye level. And it was dancing across the road. It was shimmying in and out of control almost, you know, like that. And out of sight, gone. And the and the huge big grandstand behind me, there was just a collective <gasps> intake of breath. And then there was quiet while everybody waited for the for the uh, announcer to give the lap time because you didn't have anything else to tell you. And he announced it. And the place went bananas. I mean, and when, and when he came around then in the slowing down lap, everybody stood up. There wasn't mad, frantic, oh, like scoring a goal, cheer, cheer. It was just... Just respect, just kind of... Respect, you know, so, yeah. Wow. 
That is something. I was standing with a guy called Michael Cranifus, who was the head of Ford Motorsport at the time. And Mike was just standing there beside me. And we both looked at each other and he said, well, he's American. I'll try and do an American. He said, well, now you can tell your grandchildren you saw Ayrton Senna win pole at Monaco. And I thought, yeah, you're right. So that was special. And there's lots of them, lots of examples like that. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, you mentioned Senna. Uh, I mean, the FI has come for a lot of criticism over 2021 and other decisions, but the early 90s were, of course, full of controversy, controversy, as you'll likely remember. So what are your thoughts on Senna and Prost in, in 1989 and the disqualification and, and where we are now with the FIA? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, that was a fantastic couple of years. I mean, it was just, as a reporter, as a commentator, it was wonderful to cover because it was all going on and the tension inside McLaren, Ron Dennis doing his best to keep everything cool, was extraordinary and you knew it was coming. And I was actually standing uh, overlooking the chicane um, at Suzuka because uh, I wasn't doing commentary for that. I don't know why. Maybe BBC wasn't doing it. Uh, when they had the collision. And I mean, Frost was pretty clumsy, I have to say. He was, he was, um, you know, he, he, he closed the door a bit, bit too late. But Senna was going for a gap that was going to close anyway. So it was kind of 50 50. And, and Senna, Frost had the measure of him that particular day. He really did. He set the car up so he had the speed. And he, he actually got ahead of Senna at the start. And Ayrton was doing everything to get by. And in the end, he, he, was, he just left us breaking really, really late. And Frost had said to him before, if you try it on, if you try, because because Prost maintained that Senna's attitude was, I'm coming through, and if you don't let me, we're going to crash. So Prost gen- generally got it, but this time he didn't. So he had that collision. So that was you know 50-50. What disappointed me and uh, was in 1990, the, certainly the FIA um, Balles were out to get Senna, the way they wouldn't move the pole position having agreed to, which which did his head in. And and quite right, because it would have been greed, and they wouldn't move it. Prost had the, the, the advent the advantageous side of the grid, even though he wasn't on pole. I think the sad thing, the thing that I, again, I, but by this time I was doing the commentary, I definitely was doing the commentary in 1990, and we'd been building up, the tension had been building up all weekend, and we knew it was all on the two of them on the front row, sending the Ferrari, sending the McLaren, Prost and the Ferrari. And we thought, this is going to be great, this is really good. And we're really looking forward to talking it all up. Bang! It's all over. The championship's done before the first laps even completed, the sense of anticlimax, that's all I remember was, oh no, that's it, it's done. That's a good point actually. You know, we all look back on it and think, oh, you know, this incredible moment. But yeah, at the time, I guess, it's, yeah, that's it. It's just, it's done. Because it, you, you're looking for, you know, what was it, 45 laps around Suzuka, wonderful, wonderful track. Great battle you're going to have between these two. Bang, it's all over. Oh no, what? And so you're doing the commentary and say, well, that's it, Ayrton Senna's champion. What Ayrton did that day, it was very naughty, you know, to drive into the back of somebody just I in my view, um, was 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 not on. Um, but he'd been provoked, no question about it, by Balest was Balest was out of hand. Balest was just so political um and um, was favoring Prost, no doubt. So I can understand why I did it up to a point, but not to do that going into down the bottom of that hill with about 23 other cars or whatever behind them, barreling into that corner at high speed and, and causing a collision. Uh, for me, was 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 not on the 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 governing body. The FIA was very strange, very lax, um, and of course, then Max Mosley took over, and he was quite the reverse. He he, for Mosley, who was a former barrister 
uh, the rule of law was everything, and things changed for the better, I think, in many respects. Max had his problem with faults, but boy, did he sort things out. So, yeah, that was very, very messy, 1990 at Suzuka, and, and very, very disappointing. <laughs> well, I can remember watching Murray's commentary on that day. Uh, it's iconic when, when Senna hit Prost. And I just want to if it, just talk about your relationship with, with, with the great man. I mean, in, in Incredible, his warmth, his kindness, the fact he always knew what to say at the right moment and just how loved he was really comes through. And I just want, how did you meet Murray and how did you cement a friendship that would beca- that, 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 that you had for so many years? You wouldn't believe this, but I actually first met Murray when I was a page and Moy punter going to the Monaco Grand Prix with my dad <laughs> in 73. And it was uh, at a Luton airport, um, um, a charter flight, which Page and Moy put on. And Murray happened to be on it. And he and the seats were three by three. And he sat beside, he happened to draw the unlucky ticket, I'm afraid. He sat beside me and my dad. And so we got talking to him on the, on the way down. And my dad was just was so excited about this before we even got to Monaco, you know. Uh, so, and he was just lovely. He just chatted away as if he knew us all his life. And and that was the way Murray was. But obviously I reminded him about this many years that he didn't remember and I didn't expect him to. So when I became a journalist, it, it just, with Murray, it was just a natural thing. He would walk up to me and say, I can't remember exactly where it was, but he would say, hi, I'm Murray, as, as if I didn't know. I'm Murray Walker. Welcome, I hear you're now going to write for The Guardian. Nice to have you on board. Uh, and, and, you want to know, and just so helpful and kind. And he would be at any any function that you went to. Murray would always be there. You knew you could start when Murray arrived because, yep, okay, we're all set. Murray's here. It's good. He was so enthusiastic about everything, everything, every conceivable aspect of the sport. And you know what? It, 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 had, it's had, it has its downs. It has moments where it's not so good. But Murray didn't see that. Murray would uh, just get it. We, I remember we'd, we we would do the odd race, uh, which was a bit tedious, you know, and we'd be sitting in the media centre. I'd be busy then having done the commentary on, on a dull race, trying to write a report for whoever it was, the Guardian or the, uh, probably. And um, Murray would bounce into the media centre having got to go, well, wasn't that great? And everybody would go, what? <laughs> but for Murray, it was great. It was great because... He loved it. It was just there was some aspect of every race that he enjoyed, and he was just a genuine enthusiast and a genuinely lovely man. You couldn't help but be enthused when you're in, in his company. Yeah, and that obviously came across perfectly in his commentaries. Uh, but yeah, uh, for for maybe the younger listener or, or those who may not know, obviously there there was something known as the Murrayism, where he maybe slightly slipped up along the way. So, what was your favourite Murrayism, personally? Um, God, there's so many, weren't there? Um, I, <laughs> uh, let me see, hang on. I mean, I've got the, I happen to, by the way, the book's out in paperback tomorrow. So, oh, good man, <laughs> I'll get the hardback. Um, I mean, when I was doing them all, when I was putting them together, but I was just, I was just laughing at every single one. Um, they're all, they're all, they're all good. You know, unless I'm very much mistaken. Yes, I am very much mistaken or, um, Oh, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that car except it's on fire. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I think the one, if I can find it, the one where he said, "Oh yeah, this one, this one," and this is this is Maria. This is Maria's bit. There is no doubt in my mind that if the race had been 46 laps instead of 45, it would have been a McLaren first and second, but it didn't, so it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
It's fabulous. Only Murray can say, and he says it genuinely. I mean, he's not trying to be funny. You know, he's not. He's not doing it for effect. It's just the way he was. It's just the way he talked. It's enthusiasm. I think part of it was driven by the fact that he made copious notes throughout the Grand Prix weekend. I mean, pages and pages of notes. And when you went into the, if you went into the commentary box, these notes would be plastered everywhere, all around the place. And he had so much information. I think that. He would be trying to get it all out to you, you know, and that's when you would get these slips of the tongue because he was trying to share. He wanted you to know, the listener, to know, or the viewer, to know. It will come out in a blur. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just reading one, actually, as well. I just found, I just found one about uh, Schumacher. Where was it? Uh, it's, which one is it? Uh, Michael Shinata's car is absolutely unique, except for the one behind him, which is identical. Yes. Just <laughs> brilliant. I just, just, I just, <laughs> it's just fantastic. <laughs> You obviously have your own experiences from from within the paddock. Of those, are there any particular overriding memories for you? You mean just generally, the paddock generally, or with Murray? Yeah, well, well in, in, in general, you know, from your time working in the sport. Oh, there's lots. I mean, it just so many because I'm very privileged to have a media pass which, which got me into the paddock, the Holy of Holies. Um, I really appreciate that because when Bernie took control, then he stopped it. I, I, I can go back to the day when at Silverstone, for example, you paid a pound and you got a paddock pass and you, you could go in you could, and you, you would rub shoulders with the drivers. Um, whereas then Bernie came in and he stopped all that. And but whereas I then had the pass, which got me in. So I was in this, this Holy of Holies. And by the way, just talking about the, 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 the ability to go into the paddock before Bernie and you would, see Graham Hill, you would see Jim Clark, you would see them all there. And we could, you could almost touch them, but you wouldn't interfere. And just what made me say this was, you probably read about what happened in Mexico when they had big problems with the fans. They were, they're trying to get more fans in, which is nice. Mm. I'm, I'm in favour of that. I think that's good. But it's gone too much the other way. Because of the celebrity that's been bestowed upon them by Netflix and all the rest, which in a way is good and in another way is bad, it's got too much. And people don't have the respect anymore. Whereas you would find that back in the day, all the fans would we would all stand round the, the Team Lotus truck where they were working on the cars, and nobody would interfere. Nobody would dare to even. Uh, somebody might ask for a, an autograph if the driver came near the the rope, but that would be it. Whereas today, I mean, it's bedlam, it's madness. So, so the paddock, the paddock, in that respect, has changed. So then, when Bernie took over, and it became quite impersonal, and uh, and so on. So we. I suppose um, before before we had PR and the rest of it, and you could see the drivers, you could go and have a, a coffee with them, and so on. It would be yeah, it would it would be much more relaxed. Today, it's it's not relaxed at all. I mean, I went to the Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort. I haven't been to many recently, but I went to the Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort because I love Zandvoort, uh, one of my favourite circuits, and I wanted to see how much it had changed. And in many respects, the actual circuit, apart from additional grandstands, is still the same wonderful place. Wonderful atmosphere, easy to get to. I love the whole thing, but in the paddock, I didn't get. I did. The paddock had to be split in two now because it's so big. You, you couldn't get the existing Formula One paddock into where the old one used to be. It's just too small. That that area down to the Tarzan hairpin. So they have to put uh, a separate one for hospitality. So that kind of splits things up anyway. But I never saw a soul. I didn't see. I saw drivers riding past on their bikes. They had push bikes to get from one paddock to the other. But you had no chance to talk, so you know that. that uh, and I thought, well, that's the way life is. And the 
the, the guys that are covering it now, they just accept that, which is fine. That's that's what that's what life is. That's not a problem. I don't have any problem with that. But for me, you know, it seems so different. Um, I, I think one one race that if you're talking about emotion, um, I mean, obviously there's the seriously bad emotion of Imola in 1994, which is, is one extreme, which was just absolutely horrible, dread, dread, dreadful thing to deal with. Um, on the other end of the scale, any time you have a world championship settled, the paddock's wonderful, you know. I mean, I've seen some wonderful moments when the champions are celebrating. I've been very fortunate to be there and, and say, like Damon Hill at Suzuka in 96, uh, I was right there, right there, because I had to get the whole – I was ghosting Damon's column for him. And I had to get <laughs> – it was quite funny because um, I was doing the commentary for Five Live and the commentary box was on the other side of the circuit and Damon wins the championship, and I know I've got to get to him to to get my tip going so that I can then sit and ghost his column. But I also know, having won the championship, he's going to be besieged. And if I don't get him quick, I'm not going to have a decent column. And the guy I'm worried about most is a guy called Carl Heinz Zimmerman, who ran the hospitality for Camel and for Bernie then. And Carl Heinz had a tradition in that the newly crowned world champion had to smoke a cigar and drink a glass of schnapps because Carl Heinz is off him. And I knew he would be coming to get Damon to do that. And I knew that Damon, as all drivers, they're fit, they don't drink a lot. You give them a sniff of alcohol and they fall over. You know? And I thought, my God, I've, I've got to get there quick. And, and when I came down the steps at the back of the paddock, Murray's already got to Damon first. I know. So Murray's doing his interview. And then I see Carl Heinz coming around, all the mechanics coming around. I think, oh, no. And I tried to get Damon on. I mean, it was almost incoherent. <laughs> it was impossible. So you've got that, but that wonderful buzz. Jensen, when he won the championship in Oman, Interlagos, oh my goodness me, the atmosphere in that wonderful little narrow paddock. It was bedlam. It was crazy. Uh, but you, 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 you've got this mix of excitement because you're in it, but also uh, worry because you've got a job to do. You've got to get your quotes. You've got to write your story. And for Brazil, the deadlines are even tighter, you know. So you've got you've got all of that to do, but sorry, getting back to to atmosphere. The one that uh, I remember most uh, from the point of view of atmosphere was the United States Grand Prix, uh, and when they had the very first big event after September 11. In the United States, the Grand Prix happened to be the first major public event, and uh, where there was talk of Formula One not going, you know, we said no, the people. I remember Michael and Ralph Schumacher saying, no, we don't, we don't want to go. It's too dangerous. And luckily, fortunately, we went. And I have to tell you, it was the most emotional day at a race I've ever had because the place, when you drove in, you gave your little American flag and everybody had one. And they had the Indianapolis school choir singing on the podium. And they had the American national anthem. And it, and it was, they, they, the whole country was trying to come together after this, devastation two weeks before and Formula One played its part and I, the hairs uh, they stand up in the back of my neck now I'm thinking about it I mean it was incredible absolutely and it's a theatre of motorsport anyway the IMS in, in Indianapolis Motor Speedway so it was just an amazing amazing occasion I can remember watching that race and I can remember watching the national anthem being said um, it was a very distinct atmosphere and I don't think one that will be repeated again it's just one of those one-offs but for our last, uh, our last topic, Maurice, our last question, it's something we ask every guest who comes on to any of our podcasts, and it's called our Motorsport Time Machine. So if you could go back to any year, 
any part of motorsport, Formula One, what would you, where would you go and what would you do? It can be it can be past or future as well. Okay, okay. Um, uh, that's so hard. <laughs> um, my 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 favorite race, the one that um, had a big effect on me, and I'd love to see it again, um, was before I actually became a journalist when I was still just a, a fan. Was the nineteen sixty nine British Grand Prix? at Silverstone was the greatest race I've ever seen because uh, I was in the grandstand at Woodcote with my dad and it was uh, for an hour and a quarter Jochen, Jochen Rint in the Lotus and Jackie Stewart in the Matra went wheel to wheel I mean they went at it like I've never seen before but not in a tense way they were good friends huge respect they were passing and repassing but they were on the edge the two of them for the entire hour and a quarter until the rear wing on the Lotus got damaged against the wheel and Rint had to make a pit stop. I've never seen anything like it because in Woodcut in the old days, this is the old Silverstone, so they were coming flat out underneath the bridge, it used to be the Daily Express Bridge, and into Woodcut at about 170. And you never knew which one of them was going to appear first. You didn't know because they'd been passing and repassing down Hanger Strait. And we were on the edge of our seats for an hour and a quarter. We just didn't move. It was phenomenal. And they, they lapped everybody but the guy who finished third. I mean, they were that far. They just left everybody standing because they were the two top men, two different cars, two different styles of driving, massive respect for each other, but they both knew they were going for the championship that year. And this Rint was trying to get, get it, and Stuart was trying to get it for the first time. That's right. And it was mega, mega race. I mean, phenomenal. So I think I would like to go back and, and experience that again, and also experience how it was in 69. Because in 69, the Lotus truck and the Tyrrell truck would have been side by side on the, on the gravel paddock. Uh, there was no garages. You had to, they had to work in the cars and then take them around the end of the pits and up into the pit lane. The, the, there was no throughway. I remember we had breakfast in the cafe at the back. There was a cafe where you go in for your bacon and eggs, and there would be drivers in there. Um, and and mechanics and everybody and the whole and we were and we were camping across the road in a, in a tent across the road where the Jordan factory now is or sorry Jordan was it now Aston Martin Aston factory, yeah. factory now is um, we were camping in there you know in a few uh, just yeah I think I would I would love for old times sake to savor that atmosphere but to watch that race again I'd love to see it because and as I was saying at, at the beginning. The cars are moving around. I mean, they were on the edge. You'll see pictures, if you look them up, of them coming through the old uh, Beckett's Corner, which is just a fast right. And you'll see them both, because the cars rolled much more than they do now. They were on the edge with both the touch of opposite lock-on, power sliding. Ah, brilliant. Yeah, I love to see that. That sounds epic. And that, to me, is Formula One at its absolute finest, when you have two people going at it, hammer and, to- hammer and tong, Really close racing, but fair on the edge in two different cars. That for me is what Formula One should be. Uh, but unfortunately, that is, I think, all we've got all we've got time for. Thank you so much for joining us, Maurice. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your insights and your your stories. They're fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, guys, and very good luck with your website and all you're doing. Good luck to you. Cheers. Thanks Thank you as well, Sam, for joining it's, us. It's been brilliant. Thank, Thank you very much, James, for having me. Yeah. Over at all. Well, and uh, as as the great Murray Walker once said, unless I'm very much mistaken. I am very much mistaken. That is the end of the show for today. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.
You're listening to the Cut to the Race podcast. It's lights out and away we go. Sports Social Podcast Network.